0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
2: There's been a development certainly on what is happening to the tracking company that entered administration. About this time last week, Scott's Refrigerated Transport will bring that to you very shortly on the Country Hour today. Plus, more information on what could be the biggest find to do with livestock identification breaches in Victoria's history. We'll go through the details of that court case on the program today. And whilst we're talking numbers, the volume of water flowing in the Murray River system in November and December was apparently the largest recorded amount in 127 years. Those figures coming from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. They'll join you this hour as well. It should be a busy one on the Country Hour today. I'd love your input as well. 1300 977 22 to call or text 0467 842 722. Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Angus Verley. G'day, Angus.
3: G'day, Was. The Australian wool industry is looking to ramp up supply of the fibre to India and potentially recruit a much-needed workforce in the process. Wool Producers Australia will be among a delegation travelling to New Delhi to attend the inaugural Joint India-Australia Wool Working Group. Currently, just 5% of Australia's wool clip is exported to India. Wool Producers Chief Executive Joe Hall says part of the discussion will include creating a potential pathway for Indian shearers to work in Australia.
4: It's very early stages yet. As you would be aware, there's um, quite a sheer shortage happening here in Australia at the moment. And the industry itself is looking at any options that we can investigate to to fill that shortage. So we have had preliminary discussions and it will form part of that meeting agenda. But India has um, actually more sheep than Australia. So we view this as a potential skills transfer between the two countries and a cooperative Agreement, But we've got a lot of hurdles to jump first. For example, India's uh, shearing systems are, are quite different to Australia's systems. So it's very much just investigative at this point in time.
3: While Australia has to deal with falling milk production and a shrinking dairy industry, that is not the case in one of the world's biggest dairy markets. In the United States, dairy is continuing to grow on the back of large-scale investment that is coming from family farmers. Mike McCulley from the McCulley Group near Chicago says money is still flowing into the industry.
5: The, uh, the dairy industry in, in, the, in America is, I'd say, quite dynamic. There's a lot of investment going on. Uh, in, in contrast to what we've talked about here the last day or so at the conference about the the shrinking of the Australian dairy industry, the U.S. has continued to grow. It, it, milk production grows roughly 1% to 1.5% year over year, and it's been doing that for decades And uh, the the number of, of dairy plants that are being built right now, there's over $5 billion of investments in new dairy plants that are being constructed this year out into next year.
3: Australia is increasing shipments of wood chips to Indonesia. Midway Limited, which is Australia's largest wood chip exporter, says Indonesia has become a net importer of timber and has just taken delivery of wood chips from the Tiwi Islands. Midway's chief executive, Tony McKenna, says prices for wood chips are increasing and combined with the short shipping times to Indonesia, he expects the market to grow.
6: We'll start off slowly and uh, with some small volumes over the next uh, year or so, but um, just because of the proximity it makes a lot of sense to be exporting from Australia to Indonesia.
3: Australia's mango harvest is coming to a close. And while the official numbers won't be available for a few months, it seems growers have picked around 10 million trays in the 2022-23 season. Brett Kelly, the Chief Executive of the Australian Mango Industry Association, says while the big crop is to be celebrated, low prices this year have made it difficult for growers. He says growers will need to
7: help lift mango prices. Demand has grown. Sales have grown and we'll I have the actual t- statistics on that in the next month or so um, But you've got to remember That there's two things there's marketing marketing drives volume and that drives um, You know more sales no doubt about that pricing is a separate issue I mean anybody can sell two dollar coins for a dollar but at the end of the day If you're selling more volume you've got to get a fair return and I, I, I believe we've got to get a better position um, collectively our, our growers do in terms of the price that they are negotiated and and hopefully can be contracted to.
3: And lastly, 1,000 razorfish shells made from clay have been buried in a seabed near Kangaroo Island to create artificial reefs for native oysters to grow. The island is home to one of the few pockets in the country where native flat Anghazi oysters exist after they were over harvested in the late 1800s. Kangaroo Island Landscape Board Coast's project officer, Alex Comino, says they teamed up with ceramicist Jane Bamford to replicate the shells and create new habitats for the threatened species.
1: Jane was working down here on another project and it was really just a conversation between at the time, our project lead and, and Jane about how could we create structure and a new substrate that mimics what these native oysters are looking for in the wild naturally, so particularly important was the relationship that the Angazi oyster, the native flat oyster has with the native pinna or, or razorfish. We were looking to create an artificial but biodegradable mimic of those razorfish and have them installed on our reef and then Jane came along and, and the rest was history really.
2: And was that's it for Rural News. Ceramic Angazi oyster habitat. Amazing. Thank you very much for that. Angus Furley there with Rural News.
1: The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
2: Administrators for Scott's Refrigerated Logistics, uh, which entered voluntary administration last Monday, say they've not been able to find a buyer for the business. Now, this is the, the national freight company that counts supermarkets like uh, Coles and Aldi among its clients and had a large number of staff. Scott Langdon is a partner from Corder Mentha who've been working on this and can join us now on the program. Welcome to the Country Hour.
8: Uh, thanks very much, Warwick. Good
2: afternoon all. I suppose I just wanted to leave this open for you really to tell us the latest and, and what sort of work you've been doing over the last week with Scott's Refrigerated Logistics. What can you tell us?
8: So uh, after we got appointed um, late uh, Monday night, um, we, we went out and actively sought interested parties to see who would be able to buy the business and continue it as a going concern Um, but given the financial position of the business and the severity of the cash flow um, negative position that business found itself within we were only able to run a very short sale process and uh, ultimately none of the interested parties um, who were very strong counterparties good bona fides would have been good purchasers could uh, transact within the time frame uh, that we're looking to transact within. And ultimately, we made the decision on Friday afternoon that um, a going concern sale wasn't uh, available and will commence uh, a wind down of the operations. Um, customers were were, made av- uh, were were advised late Friday afternoon. Um, the employees were made uh, uh, were advised late Friday afternoon that the business will be winding down. But I suppose what's transpired since then is that um, it's very clear that uh, we are probably going to enter into a uncontrolled wind-down due to the financial situation of the business. That means that um, you know we will be in all likelihood um, not being able to hit, uh, produce products, um, our services to customers, and the customers won't be able to ultimately deliver to the retailers on a, on a business-as-usual basis. Um, I can say that Nick Capp, the CEO, has done a tremendous job of rallying the senior management team to put a plan in place to try and mitigate the loss. And, you know, the 1,500 employees are incredibly passionate about their business. And what we're trying to do is to make sure that we can wind the business down in a manner that has harm minimizations to employees, to suppliers, to customers. But that challenge is becoming bigger and bigger and harder and harder, given the financial state of the business. and as we've advised customers today, as we've advised um, third parties that we don't have confidence that we can do it in a controlled manner, given the financial severity um, that the business finds itself in. And we are are trying to do our best to work with stakeholders to sort of slow down the wind down. at the moment, um, we're finding it incredibly challenging given the financial situation of the business.
2: Yeah, the, the term "uncontrolled wind down" does that suggest really that there are even a lot of unknowns about what sort of work and how you're going to do it from here?
8: Uh, that's right. But we, we spent a lot of time with management over the weekend, and and one of the things that we're trying to work out where's the impact going to be felt most, and and the team, my team, and the management team have worked together, and it's clear that the the, the logistics. Scots is a massive logistical provider to the regional parts of Australia, and um, that's likely to have an immediate impact on the farmers and the small to medium businesses there because um, the product that's currently in the ground or being picked by the farmers around the country would be reliant and being planted on Scots to transport their product around the country. And, you know, one of the, one of the customers said that, you know, we've got 5,000 pallets of fresh watermelons in Bundaberg that were going to be taken by Scots in the week ahead we won't be able to produce that and the specific pockets which we think are going to be probably the most exposed and we're just trying to work out how we do the minimisation of the harm but Far North Queensland, uh, the Mildura region, the Riverina, uh, Renmark in South Australia, are the pockets where um, our planning um, with management feel like they're most exposed but um, the business is in such a financial state that absent some support financially from outside the business that it's likely to go into an uncontrolled wind down albeit you know the management team and our team are doing everything possible to minimize the damage to, to, to customers and to ensure we can still pick up the produce and also you know, get it onto the shelf.
2: So not being able to find a buyer and going into an uncontrolled wind down what does that mean for Scott's employees?
8: It's, it's tragic and you know for the employees that you no, know, you you speak to the employees, you can see how proud they are of their business. There's a lot of employees who have been there for such a long time, and if we had some more financial assistance, we could see the business close in a in a very dignified way, in a in a way that has harm minimisation to employees and customers. But um, ultimately, um, the business will be wound up, and and the employees will not be employees of Scotts going forward. And uh, we are doing what we can to try and find uh, new opportunities for employees. The, um, the customer group um, and stakeholders around the business have been incredibly generous with reaching out to try and re, um, re-employ the employees. So we are you know, doing all things possible to, to connect new employers with the employees. And you know, ultimately, you know, our heart sinks for the employees for the situation they find themselves in, the uncertainty that they find themselves in. But what we need to do is hopefully we can get some external support close the business down in a meaningful and dignified way so the harm's reduced and hopefully facilitate new employment for the for the staff, for the 1,500 staff who have been so incredibly loyal to the business but also been incredibly supportive of the quarter method team since we um, got involved.
2: Yeah, we're speaking to Scott Langdon, partner of Quarter Manfa here on The Country Air about the future of Scott's refrigerated logistics. Uh, what timeline do you have for the wind-up of the business? What sort of period of time are we expecting this to take, Scott Langdon?
8: Uh, it's imminent that um, our planning is on the basis that um, the wind-down will start at uh, the back end of today, early tomorrow, or could start as that early, absent getting support from um, external parties to help us as I said, with a methodical, um, respectful wind-down.
2: And when you say absent of support from external parties, what parties could help? Could you expect or ask for something like government assistance
8: here? Uh, We haven't received any assistance from government um, through this wind-down. We've been in positive dialogue with them and they've been very open uh, with us and very respectful of the situation. But no money has come through from the federal government. We have asked a number of times for financial support but uh, that has not been forthcoming yet. We've been asking of financial support from customers who have been um, willing to pitch in, but um, it's a challenging situation for a lot of stakeholders.
2: And then suppose then in terms of the customers as well, you you mentioned those areas and I imagine a lot of farming communities and food producing communities where they're expecting deliveries like Far North Queensland, Sunraysia and and Riverina among those other areas you were saying. What about the people they deliver to supermarkets among those? Are they going to find it difficult to get these deliveries if Scott winds up this quickly?
8: Uh, Based on my engagement with the management team, we think that um, especially the smaller to medium-sized retailers will feel the impacts of it. Um, Absolutely, especially in those regional towns that I mentioned earlier.
2: And in terms of creditors to Scots, uh, are they likely to see any of their money again?
8: Uh, We're not too sure what the financial construct looks like at the moment. Um, At the moment, we're trying to look after the customers, look after the employees, and ultimately suppliers and creditors will be looked after if we can do this in a methodical and... um, the wind down in a meaningful way.
2: This is obviously a, a large part of Quartermentha's business that you're working in. Does it usually work this fast at, in terms of when you you come into a business and within a week, uh, you've got to look seriously at winding the business up in an uncontrolled way?
8: Yeah, Warwick, um, this is a very unique situation. Uh, in my 20 years uh, with Quartermentha, uh, this is definitely probably the most intense uh, situation that we've found in terms of having to make decisions around operational continuity and, and uh, the rationale for that is because of the financial position of the business was so fragile and such in you know, a cash flow negative position. These are the decisions that needed to be made quickly um, and unfortunately, it's uh, not been able to see a fulsome sale of business process. Unfortunately, we couldn't see Scots be transferred to a new owner to see it turn around and become a, a business, a strong business into the future. Just the severity of the financial position the business found itself in um, yeah, it was very challenging, and uh, yeah, the very unique situation, and one that puts a lot of stress on stakeholders like employees, um, like customers, like suppliers. It causes a lot of stress, and I really do empathise for all of the people who are involved for this situation. It's it's uh, the uncertainty is is very very challenging.
2: And is there anything else that you think that the community or those who are following this closely need to know?
8: Uh, I think that I think the key message I'd say to the, the community would be that. The employees are incredibly loyal. Uh, they're doing their role in trying the best to keep the business together. Um, their professionalism, their professionalism and their approach to Scott's has been um, fantastic. And me and my team have been overwhelmed by how passionate they are about their business. And, and we just want to make sure that um, we can provide opportunities to find new employment as quickly as possible and see the um, closure of Scott's done in a methodical and yeah, respectful manner.
2: Well, we thank you for your openness and your time on the program today. Scott Langdon, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Warwick. Cheers. Uh, from Quarter Mentha there, Scott Langdon, speaking about the future of Scott's refrigerated logistics, which, as you heard, is not a good uh, news story, but important that we share that information with you all the same. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 22 plus past 12. Let's go to the courtroom now because a former Gippsland livestock agent has been handed what is thought to be Victoria's largest ever fine for breaching livestock biosecurity laws. Victorian Country, our executive producer, Emma Field, has been following this case for ABC Rural and can join you again now as your host as well last Friday. Emma, welcome back to the Country Hour. G'day, Warwick. What can you tell us about this case?
9: So Nathan Gibbon is a former livestock agent based down in uh, West Gippsland and on Friday he was fined $56,500 in the Latrobe Valley Magistrate Court. He pleaded guilty to 109 charges of making false and misleading statement about livestock traceability. Now, I'm sure everyone's pretty familiar with the livestock traceability um, system we have in Australia, the NLIS system, plus we've got PIC codes and a range of different things you need to do with different forms and what have you to make sure that should there be an outbreak of disease or should there be some food safety problems, you can trace the animal right back to where it uh, was born um, so that you've got that traceability across the system. So you can look up anything that um, that's problematic. So that's a huge amount of charges you have to appreciate I mean they actually came under his company and himself So there's two lots of charges there Um, And interestingly he had a previous conviction for this too So that probably accounts for that large fine So in 2022 he was fined $20,000 for sort of similar um, type charges
2: And these are much more substantial fines than what we have seen I suppose, in other cases of, of abuse of the livestock identification scheme.
9: That's right. I mean, I imagine the department, so this is Ag- Agriculture Victoria, they oversee the state legislation in this regard. They probably were keeping an eye on him since 2022, I'd say, when those charges, other charges came in. So these, this is a fending that took p- place in January to February 2021. And partly the reason there's a num- large number of um, charges is because he was a, a weigh scale operator as well for abattoirs. So there was a lot of cattle going through. And so a lot of the charges relate to the fact that he failed to forward vendor deck forms or vendor declaration forms, sorry, or livestock agent declarations to purchases and to abattoirs, and in some cases he falsified those documents. Um, so in a couple of cases, I think he actually said that he was the owner of the cattle as opposed to the previous um, people that or farmers that, that owned them and so of course that completely breaks the traceability if anyone had to, had to go back and look at that and in another interesting case they pulled out the court heard that um, Gibbon's company failed to disclose two cattle which Mr Meadows' Said or Sorry, when I say Mr Meadows, he was the prosecuting agent, agency, so he said this in court. He said that there were two cattle that um, Gibbon's company failed to disclose to the abattoir had been treated with hormone growth promotant and had been giving feed contained animal fats. Now, that is critical information for an abattoir to fulfil their food safety requirements. So, had there been... Uh, a problem the abattoir would not have known about those two cattle and what they'd been fed. So he was given an example of how problematic it is if you falsify documents or you don't put the right information in them.
2: So not that's not only a, a case of something being bad for biosecurity and traceability of livestock. That's bad for food safety as well.
9: That's right, and that that came about because he was a cattle scale operator. So he used to weigh cattle for abattoirs, and not in some in twenty cases, I think they said didn't give the right information in those vendor declaration forms.
2: And there was another part of this case was about intimidating uh, actions as well. Can you give us the details there?
9: That's right. Nathan Gibbon also pled guilty to one charge of intimidating an inspector, so that's a government inspector, and that related to a visit by two government officials to a Druin property in March 2021. And the court was told that Gibbon's was highly agitated and confrontational and that he swore at these two inspectors and that it led to those inspectors feeling extremely intimidated. And one uh, inspector said that her heart was racing, she was physically shaking and she suffered for anxiety after that. And the Magistrate Tim Walsh, when he was sentencing Gibbons, he said it was completely um, disrespectful, cavalier behaviour and completely disingenuous the way that he conducted himself over the intimidation but also overall with all the different cases where he didn't follow the rules or follow the law I should say.
2: Uh, And I suppose that comes down to the size of the fines and what has been handed down in court here. Can you run through all of that again for us?
9: The charges were split between his own company and, and him himself as a, as a former livestock agent. So there were 41 charges against him and there were 68 charges against his company. So for the 40 charges against him was $24,500 and that was making the false NVD statements and things like that. And there were tw- it was a $1,200 fine for the intimidation offence, which was interesting that we were told that amount. And then for his company, for the 68 charges against his company, and that relates to him failing to forward vendor deck forms, making false and misleading statements, and as a scale operator failing to you know, give the correct um, details of serial numbers, for example, he was fined 32000 So that, that totals 56500 plus he was asked to pay $340 in court costs. Really, it's a, la- it, it's a large amount, but if you think of the damage it could do to a livestock, the livestock industry, I suppose you'd, you'd say it's not really a huge amount. So I guess it's up to the public to decide what, what's suitable.
2: And there's conjecture over just if this is a record fine for the industry, isn't there?
9: That's right. We have been checking with Agriculture Victoria. We we think it is, um, but it's hard to know, you know, going back over the years about the different charges that have been laid. Usually there's not that many charges. I mean, 109 charges is a really large amount. The fine that Nathan Gibbon got the last time that he breached um, these laws was um, 20000 so that's not as, as much. And I know there was a case here in um, Sale where they were they were fined about $5,000. So it is a really large amount compared to those previous totals.
2: We'll have to keep watching from here. Emmerfield, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. That's the executive producer of this program, Emma Field, joining you, taking you through what uh, was decided upon in Gippsland Court about that livestock agent and the breaches of livestock biosecurity laws. You're listening to The Country Hour. A couple of your texts coming in just before we head off to the newsroom and then the Weather Bureau after that. Jonathan in Terrap Terrap. I love Terrap Terrap. I remember playing there. Tennis there in juniors. Twelve and a half millimetres of rain this morning with a bit of thunder and lightning will settle the dust for another day, says Jonathan. I certainly got a thunderstorm last night as well. Thanks for that. Uh, this one says, uh, read the record flow in the mor- Murray. Though, oh, and it was never going to rain again, says Dom. Dom, you never heard that on this program, but that's okay. You can. I don't really like the sledging of other people through this program, but anyway. I'll let you get away with it that time because I didn't read your text properly before I read it out. Sean says, Afternoon was wondering about a personalised weather forecast. I'm going to the week-long Stock Dog Spectacular. Good idea for a segment in Mansfield. What's the upcoming weather in Mansfield for the week ahead? Well... Sean, I'll ask that question on your behalf. That's all coming up and more on the Country Hour. We'll talk about the amount of water flowing through the Murray and what that means for the operations of the river system. Plus, we'll talk table grape harvest as well. Right now, though, let's find out what make is making regional news headlines around our state. Uh, Georgia Lenton-Williams has those headlines for us this afternoon. Good afternoon, Georgia. Thanks, Warwick.
0: A 25-year-old Karambara man has been charged with one count of murder in relation to the disappearance of a 21-year-old man more than a month ago. Jake Bradford was reported missing by his mother on the 29th of January, and the missing persons squad has been calling for more information from the public since. Investigators believe Mr Bradford was in South Gippsland before he was reported missing. A Ballarat asylum seeker has taken his fight to secure permanent visas for his family and thousands of others to Canberra. Neil Parra, his wife and two daughters have spent more than eight years stuck in limbo after their temporary bridging visas were revoked for no apparent reason. Starting today, Mr Parra and hundreds of others will undertake four days of peaceful demonstrations outside Parliament House, calling on the federal government to to increase the number of refugees who can apply for permanency. The New South Wales coroner is recommending police develop a better process for missing persons cases on the border of Victoria and New South Wales. Darren Higgins went missing in February 2017 while on leave from a Bendigo Health mental health facility. His body was found seven months later in the Moira State Forest at Barmer in New South Wales. The coroner is also recommending Victoria's chief psychiatrist consider whether there should be a review of the policy and procedure for granting leave to involuntary patients. A 20-year-old man has died at a motocross championship in Thaggy at the weekend. Paramedics were called to Thaggy motocross track shortly before 11am following reports a rider had fallen from his bike on a jump and had sustained head injuries. Victoria police say the man, who was from Queensland, was treated by on-site medical crews and Ambulance Victoria but could not be revived. WorkSafe and Victoria Police are investigating the death of a farm worker following an accident in Yarrawonga South. The 65-year-old man was helping to load a cattle truck about 11 o'clock on the morning of Tuesday, February 28, when he was hit by a pen gate and fell backwards. The man hit his head on the ground and was airlifted to hospital in a critical condition, where he died the following afternoon. For more ABC News, you can visit abc.net.au forward slash
2: news. Thanks very much for that. Georgia Lenton-Williams there with uh, regional news headlines.
1: On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian
9: Country Hour.
2: Seems uh, thunderstorms touched a few. A few more rain figures coming in. Kevin says 8mm at Myrtleford, 13mm since Friday at Peachalba from Brian. Thanks very much for that as well, Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. if you want to send a text. Christy Johnson is a senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau and can join us now to talk weather, well, I wasn't going to say more generally, but actually more specifically, really, with the forecast. G'day, Christy. Good afternoon, Warwick. How's it looking around Victoria today?
1: Look, it's, uh, it's pretty settled. Uh, after we had that front that came through, some showers and storms, um, some decent rainfalls across the state. A lot of places getting between about 20 and 40 millimetres through central and eastern parts. So uh, a good drop. Um, but that's all moved offshore now, and we've got it. We're sort of in the calm between two fronts at the moment. Um, it's fairly cool, but we're expecting top temperatures today up to around 28 for Mildura, 27 at Swan Hill, Shepparton, and Albury-Wodonga, uh, 26 in Echuca, 25 at Seymour, uh, 23 in Horsham, 22 in Warrnambool, 21 in Ballarat and Hamilton, uh, 26 out at Sale. So, uh, look, it's, yeah, not too bad today, but we will see some showers. We've got a couple around the south and, and maybe picking up around, over the southwest later today as the next front approaches. So the front's going to come through um, overnight tonight. And um, so initially some showers and possibly some thunderstorms in the southwest this evening, And then those showers will move uh, more broadly across the state, probably mostly on and south of the ranges, um, during the early hours of tomorrow. We could see some thunderstorms with that as it moves through um, sort of central coastal parts during the early hours of tomorrow morning. There's also a severe weather warning that's been issued for damaging wind gusts. Uh, That's initially for um, the first front. Uh, Tomorrow it will be mostly over the the Alps of the Eastern Ranges. Um, So some fairly windy conditions with that first front, uh, particularly over the Alps. Um, But then there's another front actually that comes in behind that one. So once that goes through during the morning, there'll just be some isolated showers in the south for most of the day. And then a rain band looks like reaching the southwest late tomorrow uh, and also some pretty windy conditions. So that's when we'll start to see, so tomorrow afternoon, evening, we'll see the wind starting to pick up through the Grampians, um, the southwest, Otways, uh, surf Coast uh, area, and then extending across to the the Prom and the Bass Coast.
2: That's the interesting thing I was going to ask you about, Christy, because it looks like that warning's a patchwork quilt, really, in different areas of Victoria. <laughs> You've got little blotches of yellow, obviously, which is usually the area. You've got the the ranges between stall and Hamilton, and then those those southern areas areas you're talking about. But that's two separate fronts coming through, is it? So that
1: that's right. There's two fronts: one coming through in the morning, and then one coming through uh, late in the day. So. Yeah, with that first front, it's probably the weaker of the two. So the main area that's going to be affected, as I say, is those eastern ranges with the really high ground. Um, But the second front's stronger, and that's where we'll see quite windy conditions uh, through a lot of the west and south. And um, those areas that are particularly exposed are obviously the the high ground over the Grampians, uh, the Otways. But maybe some coastal parts as well could see some pretty uh, strong sustained winds. Um, So, yeah, it is a bit of a patchwork, but it's sort of trying to pick the areas that are most likely to see those damaging wind gusts. Um, Obviously, there'll be some showers. Well, actually, there'll be more of a rain band with that that system, that second front, as it comes through, but that could drag down some damaging wind gusts in other places, very isolated. But the warning's out for the areas that are most likely. And uh, with that front... So it's a little bit cooler tomorrow than today with that sort of front going through in the morning... Getting up to mostly around the the mid 20s in the north and the uh, high teens down in the southwest, maybe the mid 20s out in Gippsland. Um, we, but uh, when that second front comes through on late tomorrow, we'll, we'll see that rain band getting into the southwest late, moving through again. It's coming through during the overnight period, so Victoria's obviously Camelot at the moment, and um, that rain band will move through overnight, Wednesday night, and into. Uh, um, sorry, yeah, into Thursday, no, overnight Tuesday night and into Wednesday morning, I'm getting my days mulled up. Um, and uh, and then behind that, there'll just be some isolated showers through the south, but much colder air for Wednesday as that second front goes through. So temperatures dropping to maybe reaching the low 20s in the Mallee, but most of the rest of the state looking into the mid to high teens. So much cooler day on Wednesday, there may even be a dusting of snow up on the Alps, depending on whether uh, there's some shower activity coinciding coinciding with the coldest air, but it it does get pretty cold for Wednesday. Um, But the good news is after that, things do settle down. So the next high-pressure system pushes in on Thursday. We recover the temperatures a little bit. uh, Most places getting up into the low 20s, maybe still in the high teens in the southwest. Um, So just a little bit of isolated shower activity through the south, probably tending to ease off into the late afternoon or evening as the high really pushes in. And then pretty dry through Friday, uh, Saturday. Um, Temperatures sort of slowly recovering, I guess. Uh, On Friday, it looks like uh, in the the low to mid-20s in the south and the mid to high-20s in the north. Saturday, pretty similar, uh, low to mid-20s in the south, the high-20s in the north. Sunday is a bit of uncertainty about how much rainfall we might get but there could be a bit of a trough pushing in from New South Wales but uh, really it doesn't look like much in terms of rainfall amounts uh, and the temperatures warming up a little bit again while well, still pretty much the mid-20s in the south, high-20s in the north. Uh, and then uh, for Monday at this stage early signs are we might start to go more northeasterly, uh, get a bit more of those humid Northeasterly winds coming in, perhaps some instability in the east with some afternoon showers and thunderstorms. But really, the long weekend looking pretty nice. It's just uh, the next few days as we have a series of cold fronts coming through. But as I say, the, the worst of them coming through. Well, the actual fronts themselves mostly coming through during the overnight period. So. Much of the daytime period is going to be not too bad for the next
2: couple of days. Yeah, yeah, it sounds so. Like, although it sounds like a bit more weather to talk about this week than last. I did have a question for you on the text line too, Christy. Sean has been asking, "Well, oh, how's it looking the week ahead in Mansfield? Uh, because they've got the uh, Stockdog Spectacular, uh, which is a week long event in, in Mansfield. Any uh, any advice there? I suppose that the foothills get pretty windy in the in the short term, but pretty good days by the sound of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think probably not too bad. Um, I mean, there might be the odd shower tomorrow, or Wednesday during the day. Um, but probably not much in terms of rainfall. It'll be wetter during the overnight period. Um, and yeah, as you say, definitely windy tomorrow and definitely cold, colder on, on Wednesday. But yeah, nothing really nasty, um, on the horizon. So it should be a, a pretty decent week for the event.
2: Ah, oh, there you go. That's that's probably what you want to hear, Sean. So Christy's delivering for you, uh, Christy. Thanks for the for the update, though. Really appreciate appreciate it.
1: No problem. Thanks,
2: Laura. Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, Christy Johnson, taking you through the full forecast there. Uh, you can keep your text coming, zero four six seven, eight four two seven double two. If you would like to send us a text, zero four six seven eight four two seven double two on the text line. A lot of you with uh rainfall figures, some commenting as well on that court case to do with uh the breach of NLIS and livestock tracking rules. But we'll start with the rain. Ron at Axe Creek, twenty millimeters, Mark five point six. 6mm at South Wang last night, and we had none of the storms through on Saturday night. Nick from Lakes Entrance says 8mm. With wind and blackouts, 17 millimetres of very much appreciated rain for Ruth, at rural lean Gatha. Uh, five and a half millimetres we've got uh, in uh, Violet's thunderstorm early this morning, says Dave, at Lake Tires, and four millimetres at Yarra Weir from Spence. That's got a lot of the state covered. Uh, a text here saying Is Scott's refrigerated transport the same as Scott's of Mount Gambier? No, different companies, very similar names but uh, different companies as well. So Scott's Refrigerated Transport, uh, if you Google, you'll probably see that the signage is slightly different from what you might come to expect from the Scott group as well. But thank you for sending that. That's important uh, information to share. And just on the the fine, which is thought to be a record, around $50,000 for an individual for breaches of biosecurity rules, uh, this one says the fine for the stock agent should have been double especially since he's had previous convictions. It's people like this that spread unwanted diseases. Foot and mouth disease is just one example. Then you have this view coming in as well, saying you need a lawyer now to fill out NVD forms when selling livestock. So there's some of the thoughts coming in here on the text line. We'll talk about the Murray-Darling Basin and how much water's flowing through it next on the program.
1: You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria.
2: And I mentioned it earlier, but how's this for a stat? The uh, water volume of water flowing through the Murray River system in November and December was the largest recorded in 127 years. That's that stat coming from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is uh, li- uh, updating its annual operating outlook today. Andrew Reynolds can join you, Executive Director of River Management. Welcome back to The Country yeah. Good afternoon Warwick It's extraordinary to think about stats like that You've, There's never been a recorded volume like that going through the Murray As what did on the back end of the Victorian floods
6: uh, That's right Warwick So yeah, certainly our river operations have been dominated by the floods uh, Through the back end of last year And we've uh, just re- released an update to our annual operating outlooks Now that those flood waters have started to pass through the system So we'll plan for the, the balance of the year now
2: Can I talk about how you operated before we talk about the plan for operating it in the future? When you had that much water flowing through the Murray, what does that mean for operations? Does it literally mean you just have to open everything up and let it go? Uh,
6: So at Hume Dam, where we undertake most of our operations, it's really about trying to uh, release what water we can in between rainfall events and then uh, as the next rain comes in and the peak inflow to the storage comes, being able to capture a bit of that to reduce the peak that comes out on the other side. So we're sort of turning the water on and off uh, in response to each rainfall that we we get. Um, But through those sort of four or five months when it was really wet, uh, that became very
2: challenging. And effectively the river was open from Yarrawonga to the sea, wasn't it?
6: That's right. So all of the the weirs all the way down through South Australia, Mildura and Wentworth, uh, all of those had been stripped out so that as much water could pass through them as, as was possible.
2: Let's talk about your operations then looking forward. What does this much water in the system mean for how you're looking at running the river system this year?
6: So... For storages at this time of year, they're at the record high level, which is not surprising given how much rain we've had. Uh, so, as we as we move forward through into summer, we'll return into regulated conditions, and we'll be delivering water to meet meet demands. Um, We still have some unregulated water, so more water than we need coming out of the Lower Darling Um, and so that's providing for for water at the downstream parts of the system but over the next couple of months we'll just be releasing enough to meet demands and if it turns dry or continues to be dry as it has for the last little bit, we'll see Hume Dam in particular fall away. Uh, If it goes very dry, that could get down to around 60% um, and then we'll see as we come into winter, just. exactly where we are if it's a little bit wetter than that Hume will be a bit higher and we might need to make some releases to make some airspace for next winter and spring but it's a bit too early to be making those decisions now.
2: Is that one of the difficulties I suppose when it's when it's dry you have a lot of airspace to to deal with and everyone's sort of okay with you capturing as much water as possible but is it is one of this one of the difficulties is is trying to find the line between how much storage you have for irrigation entitlements and maximizing that amount of water in the in the basin and also leaving room for possible heavy rain and flooding events that could follow.
6: That's absolutely the challenge and the operating arrangements we have set for us by governments is to to err on the side of storing water and making sure that we maximize the water available to entitlement holders. But as, the, as we get closer to, to winter and we know things are likely to turn a bit wetter, then we will be very carefully analysing how much airspace we've got. It's interesting, after all the wet conditions we've had, the Bureau's outlook for, for autumn is for a drier than average period. So we're certainly seeing a switch from wet to dry conditions
2: and we now need to manage through that. How long will it take to, to draw down areas like Dartmouth Dam?
6: Uh, So we wouldn't need to draw on Dartmouth Dam in the current season. Um, Plenty of water in Hume to meet all of the demands we'd anticipate. We've made a small release from Dartmouth just over the last couple of weeks to create a little bit of airspace in Dartmouth just in case we do get a large rainfall event, but we wouldn't anticipate drawing on Dartmouth to meet demands uh, over coming months.
2: And I'll swing around then to to the other major storages that people watch closely and there was criticism for how quickly uh, the Menindee Lakes were drawn down after the, the last time they had a major filling event. How are you looking to manage the Menindee Lakes this year?
6: So we're not expecting to draw on Menindee unless it goes very, very dry. Uh, certainly not before late in April. would be As early as we'd likely to, to draw any water from Menindee, so they're likely to stay quite high. And there's still flows coming into the Menindee lakes now. Water New South Wales are managing that and, and letting some water go um, through the Lower Darling and the Great Darling Anna Branch as well. So we don't anticipate needing to call on Menindee uh, lakes in, in this current season um, unless uh, things go very dry and then the call would be relatively modest
2: is that a change compared to how it was managed in the past
6: uh the arrangements are still the same um it's just that there's so much water in the system at the moment that we don't anticipate needing any water from an indy to meet the demands we have
2: and and so does that mean likely i suppose going into next season um i'm already thinking one irrigation season beyond the, the one that's still to open uh you're anticipating still having a lot of water in storages
6: Yeah, that's right. So we're likely to go into winter with Dartmouth close to full, Hume, you know, well above 50%, I'd expect. Our annual operating outlook shows even in really dry conditions, uh, Hume will probably only get down to about 60%. So there'll be a lot of water in the system, uh, which is likely to mean that opening allocations will be positive uh, and we'll have
2: water to to meet that demand. How long is this extra water likely to last? How long will these storages be, uh, you know, quite full for?
6: Uh, well, as I say, we're likely to head into winter and spring uh, with storage is relatively high. Um, it'll then depend, of course, how much rain we get in, in winter and, and spring when the normal peak of our inflows come. Um, but I think going into next year, we're expecting to have uh, pretty good water available and, and then really it depends on the, the climate from that point on.
2: Anything else we need to know about the operations for the year ahead?
6: Uh, Look, I think we're in a a really good position. There's plenty of water available to meet demands. Um, Certainly the the risk of shortfall, not being able to meet demands in the system, is often on people's minds. With so much water around, we think that the risk of a shortfall for the balance of this year is is very low. So just to set anyone's mind at rest that might be concerned about that as well.
2: Brilliant. Andrew Reynolds, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Warwick, Executive Director of River Management at the Murray Darling Basin Authority, Andrew Reynolds, taking you through the outlook for the year ahead for the Murray Darling Basin Authority for their operations. Anyway, and yeah, those figures—one the largest amount of water recorded in the Murray system in November and December in 127 years—that that was the volume of water flowing, the largest. 127 years. Absolutely amazing stat and obviously that means water's in storage for a while to come. You can tell us what you think about that and what you think about how the MDBA plans to use it by sending a text 0467 842 722. Let's talk a harvest right now because table grape growers in Sunraysia have gone to great lengths to produce quality fruit this season. Mild weather during spring and early summer delayed harvest by weeks but the season is now well and truly underway. Growers have been under pressure to keep things like diseases like downy and powdery mildew at bay as well and all adding to what has been a difficult year. Chris DeShira uh, from Osbrand Farming Group says harvest is likely to continue well into May.
7: Yeah no it's been definitely challenging throughout the, the springtime since uh, bud burst. A lot of extra fungicide sprays and stuff but uh, overall it's been quite okay as long as you keep, keep the downy and the powdery out it's been pretty pretty good really.
10: As well as it being a pretty mild growing season and there being quite a bit more rain than usual over spring, you got hit with hail in November. What kind of impact did that have on your three properties, which are at Curlwa, Yelta and Birdwooden?
7: Yeah, look, we had a strip of hail come through around the 16th of November, had our fingers crossed we didn't get to hit too hard, which we sort of didn't, sort of got hit on one side and sort of a strip that followed right through across to Birdwooden, which was we do get quite a bit of damage at Burwood and on some patches facing the wrong way. So yeah, in other other than that, it's the fruit's partially damaged and was trimmed up and part of the growing season as it grew. So just a few extra dollars to trim that fruit up and get it presentable for the market.
10: And Are there likely to be long term effects of that hail? Will those canes still be needed for next season?
7: Some canes did get pitted, but not quite a wipeout. So we're pretty happy with that the canes will be okay at printing time there'll be a bit of a selection to keep the good ones and get rid of the bad ones i suppose
10: what's being grown in this row of vines where we are at the moment
7: yeah we're standing in a patch of sweet celebration it's an ifg licensed variety
10: it's a seedless red grape quite large round berries
7: yeah it's a seedless red it's got a muscat aroma to it it's quite a yeah beautiful eating grape probably one of my favorites bagged up into a bunch bag pack which will be exported at this point in time.
10: Out of all of the fruit that you grow what's the breakdown of what stays in Australia and what heads overseas?
7: Yeah we're predominantly export but we still uh, supply domestic markets quite strongly in the beginning of the season which is uh, yeah, the breakdown would probably be I don't know 60-30 60% export and uh, 30-40% percent to 40% domestic.
10: And I gather most of that fruit heads to Asia, is that the same for you?
7: Yeah, most of our export is uh, Asian countries, yeah that's right.
10: Shipping's been a bit chaotic for the last few years, uh, primarily around COVID. Has the situation improved as far as you're concerned?
7: We feel that it's improving and uh, just there's been a few little issues with uh, timing and delays and given that the, the season's started late so... Could be a problem towards the end, but so far, so good.
10: There seem to be a significant number of people on the property at the moment helping get the crop off. How do you go sourcing labour?
7: Yeah, in this crew, we've got uh, 35 to 40 people. We've run two crews at the moment. So the larger crew sort of where the most needed uh, fruit needs to come off and the smaller crews pecking away at some other delicate patches. And, um, yeah, in terms of labour, we've always found it OK. You know you pay the right price and you get you get good people and uh yeah we've always had a core group that works with us pretty closely throughout the whole season or the whole year really.
10: You kicked things off in mid-January like you said it was a few weeks later than normal how much longer are you going to be going for?
7: Yeah look we're hoping to be all done by middle of May um at this stage it's hard to say because a lot of the varieties are ripening up sort of You know all at the same time or near the same time so it's quite challenging to i suppose we have to chase which patch is most needed or what variety is most needed to come off quicker than the other but at this stage you know we're cruising along quite well and we hope to be done by yeah like i said middle of may or earlier if possible
10: how much are you paying attention to the weather forecast because that's pretty critical at this time of the year too isn't it
7: yeah sure is most farmers have got their eye on the weather daily so we're one of those types of farmers we watch the weather daily and uh, sort of work with the weather um yeah it's quite critical but most of the grapes are under cover so if we get the odd share it's not too bad you know you can weather that but it's when you get the uh, 10 to 20 to 30 mils at, in one hit it makes things a bit difficult
10: so the hopes for the blue sky to stick around and mild weather for a couple more months?
7: Yeah, at the moment it's great. This week's uh, shaping up quite nice. We've got one day of 36 on Sunday, but that's pretty normal. And, uh, yeah, hopefully towards uh, Easter time we get that nice few weeks of uh, dry, warm weather, and it's good for the dried fruit growers as well, which we still grow a little bit of dried fruit, so it'll finish that off nicely.
2: He's hoping. That's Chris Desheera from Ozbrand Farming Group speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth. dollars Market time. Let's get into the cattle markets today. few to get through. We'll start in
5: Get G'day, Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. Numbers increased to 1,200. That's 220 more, with the usual buyers present but not all operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality declined with fewer prime grown, and the young cattle mostly lacking finish. The best trade cattle held firm, secondary young lots, slipped up to 40 cents. Bullocks eased 15, manufacturing steers sold firm. Heavy beef cows held firm, while dairy cows lost 5 to 15 cents, and more for lighter cows with processors loading cows for an estimated 494 to 628 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 10. vealers sold from 310 to 494. Yearling trade steers 360 to 460. The heifer portion 355 to 410. Ground steers and bullocks 338 to 387. Heavy Frisian steers 252 to 328. Crossbreds 288 to 362. Most light and medium weight cows 184 to 272. Heavyweights 240 to 330. Heavy bulls 273 to 310 this is brendan fletcher reporting for mla
11: to mortlake cattle now and chris agnew thanks warwick another large offering of 1461 cattle were yarded at mortlake this week the quality was mixed and generally plainer than last week's offering however there was some very good vealers on offer and these improved by 10 to 20 cents a kilo most of the processes together were feeders, were active where grown steers and heifers remained firm, manufacturing steers came back 10 to 15 cents a week, and the medium-weight cows, together with dairy cows, were softer by 10 to 15 cents a kilo. However some plainer cattle on offer in the trade offering were slightly softer in places and the pick of the veal made between 430 and 500 cents yielding steers and heifers 360 to 402 and the grown steers and heifers they topped at 395 manufacturing steers 260 to 355 and the good beef cows made between 300 and 330 cents medium cows 250 to 292 cents and the dairy cows 235 to 285 at more this is Chris Agner reporting for MLA.
2: Lucky last on the cattle run is Leanne Dax at Wagga Wagga.
4: Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to 3,665 of which there are 865 cows penned. The market continued to struggle this week with bigger numbers outpacing demand. Restockers and feedlots were in and out of the market throughout the sale. Prices for feeder steers were generally 20 to 40 cents cheaper. Lightweight steers back to the paddock dipped 40 cents. They range. From 320 to 382, medium weight feeder steers 276 to 401, light weights 318 to 380, trade steers were back 20 cents 310 to 382, feeder heifers medium weight slipped 10, 310 to 370, the lighter weights were firm. $3 $3 to $372. Heavy steers and bullocks, they fell twenty to thirty cents, three dollars to three sixty four. Heavy cows these back three to four, two eighty eight to three oh four. And the middle run two forty to two ninety eight. I'm Leanne Dunks for MLA.
2: Lucky last today is the sheep and lamb market reporter Bendigo. Here's Jenny Kelly.
12: Good afternoon, lamb prices took a hit today as buyer demand weakened over a similar sized yarding of 12,600 lambs. The two supermarkets were absent and most export processes were quiet amid reports a lot of meatworks have good numbers of stock around them. Prices for lambs over 24 kilos carcass weight were $8 to $18 cheaper, with the heavy 26 to 30 kilo lambs losing the most traction in this sale. There was no super lambs like a week ago. The 30 kilo plus export pens from 225 to a top of $255. Some tough spots in the heavy 26 to 30 kilo crossbred lambs at $191 to $228 to average $205. Heavy trades 166 to 192. Most processing lambs were working out between 690 to 750 cents a kilo. Light lambs and well-bred stores held up better to still remain in a range of 100 to 140. In the sheep, heavy mutton was dearer, Heavy use, 115 to a top of 143 at 330 to 390 cents a kilo. General run of sheep, similar at 45 to 85 dollars. Jenny Kelly for MLE.
2: Thanks very much for that, Jenny. That's about all the time we have for you on the country. A couple more rainfall figures. Evan had 11 millimetres at Paynesville. Joe and Stratford had 21 millimetres from the thunderstorm last night. And I love, oh, Joan at Glenline, 22 millimetres. Here you go. Here's the one to leave you on, though. Gove in the NT had 156 millimetres in three hours last night. Beat that! Says that on the text. I don't think anyone will. Thanks very much for that. I'm off for a couple of days to go to the A Bears Conference. The Country Hour will have info from the Mountain Cattle Sales though for you over the next couple of days. Catch you then.